Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Justin the Food Entrepreneur's Podcast. I'm Justin Bizarro. I'm your host. And today I have with us Deep Roops Winery and Bistro. How are you guys doing today? Doing well. Doing quite well today. Uh, please go ahead and introduce each one of yourselves and tell us what you do at Deep Roots. I'll use an abbreviation. Sure. Uh, my name's Steve. I do really whatever needs to be done in the winery. So primary focus is really around uh, the, the making of the wine and then probably secondary doing dishes. <laughs> <laughs> my name is Tiara, um, a.k.a. Mistress Zinn, um, and I am the front of the house. So I am the generally one of the first people you see when you come in, uh, but I also handle all of the books and the legal side of the business. My name is Carol Ann, a.k.a. The Black Truffle. Um, I am the head chef and also events manager. You'll see me running around helping tear out if I have a moment doing whatever needs to be done. And it's kind of one of those things that we all do a little bit of everything. And so tell us a little bit about the superhero names. We mentioned them. So how did you get them and what do they mean? <laughs> so um, we did it kind of as a team building exercise Uh and trying to fill out our website to give kind of a, a personality um, behind the the staff at Deep Roots. And so my name being Mistress Sin because um, I pretty much drink Sin all day long. Um, it's my favorite wine that my husband has produced, um, but also just because I tend to be kind of on the, the heavier brooding side. Not really, but you know. My name is the Black Truffle, and that came along because... The truffles that we have at our winery for the longest time gave me a run for my money, uh, trying to perfect them. And I have a tendency to listen to classic music, and on more than one occasion you can walk past the kitchen and I'll be singing Black Velvet by Joan Jett. And uh, I'm Sensei Steve, and I think it was primarily because I'm the master vintner. And so I think that came from Cam. Came from Cam, yep. Yeah. So really just the teacher of wine. And so, okay, so now we've got all the names. So you, how did you all get to where you are? How did you get in business together? And where did you all start, actually? Well, we have to go back um, almost 30 years for that one. Um, so I started, Carol and I started making wine with our family when I was about six. Um, my family had uh, friends that owned a vineyard in Traverse City, and we would help with harvest, and we would get grapes as kind of a payment for helping, um, and my grandfather would make wine. And then we would, um, you know, we learned how to make it, and we started venturing into, like, blackberries, black raspberries, uh, just that different kind of stuff, but we grew up with the, the love of winemaking. Um, so I then turned around and became an assistant vintner when I was in college. Um, so I got to learn the business side of a winery and really loved the process. Um, so I always knew one day I would want to do this, um, but it just so happened my sister decided to go to culinary school. <laughs> and for the longest time when I was younger, it was debating back and forth between being a teacher or culinary school. And I had it said to me, let's be honest, you, you can't stand other people's kids. You can't be a teacher of little children. And I was like, yeah, you're right. So I went on to culinary school and I've always loved food. We come from the type of family that if you don't know how to cook, we kind of look at you like, why are you here? Um, we like to eat. We love to be together. We love to cook and just hang out. And food's always been like a central thing for our family for a really long time. Yeah. 
And so we um, had this plan with our brother, um, who he's older, was older, um, than me, and he was going to make the beer, I was going to make the wine, Carol was going to make the food, and we were going to open a place together as a family. Uh, You know, because what doesn't sound more appealing to three siblings than working together and owning the place so no one else can tell you what to do. And the funny part for us is we actually are those weird siblings that we were happiest when we were not more than a half hour drive from each other. We really, truly actually did love being around each other. People ask all this, ask us all the time now, like, how do we work together as sisters? And I'm like, she's my best friend. No. But unfortunately, um, our brother passed away of a heart attack in um, 2014. Um, he was 29 years old. And so for us, that quickly prompted us to reevaluate what we were doing in life at the point, or at that point. Um, Steve and I were married already, um, and luckily he has an extensive palate in European wines and a background in chemistry and all sorts. Well, he's got a PhD in nuclear physics, so um, he's definitely the brains of the wine. Um, And so we started planning um, our retirement. And in 2015, we decided to make a a go of our first wines. And the, then from there, it was kind of funny. It went from retirement and kind of like them just doing their thing. And then I came to surprise my sister that summer and I found out she was pregnant with my nephew. And I get told, hey, this isn't going to be a retirement plan anymore. We're going to do this. You need to figure out how to move out here. I got voluntold like big sisters love to do. And so then it was just from there, it was kind of like, Tiny. go. Yeah. And so are you from Colorado originally? No. So I'm, I'm originally from Chicago, but I, I lived uh, in Japan, I lived in Europe, I lived all over the U.S., but I moved out to Colorado in 2001. Okay. And then I moved out to Colorado in 2011. And I moved out to Colorado in May of 17, so it'll be two years for me this year. Okay, and when did you guys start officially start Deep Roots? Um, we officially started the company itself in uh, February of 2017. We started producing our wine in 2015. Um, so we had the brand and license through the government and stuff, but the actual company and the development of what is now the Bistro started in February of 17. Okay. So where are you guys from originally then, uh, your family? Uh, Michigan. Michigan. Okay. And there's, just because you were mentioning grapes and vineyards, are there vineyards in Michigan? Traverse City. Okay. And so that's where your family came from. Oh, but I want to go back. First, I want to say I'm sorry to hear about your brother. That's tough, losing a family member. And um, But the fact that you still honored him and moved forward and figured out a way to still live your dreams together and, and I feel that represent him and uh, kept him living on, I think that's awesome. So kudos, I, you know, because I, that's not an easy thing to do when you lose someone that, that you're close to, especially when you're trying to do a business with them. So... Uh, I think that's tough, but I, I really just, I'm amazed. So thank you for sharing that and being vulnerable for sure. So tell me now a little bit about how you came up with the name Deep Roots <laughs> and, and why and <laughs> where it came from. That story. That's you, Steve. So there, there's a, a few versions, right? <laughs> so um, a deep root on a vine produces a really, it's a better grape. Right, because it's, it's getting deeper into the soil, more nutrients, you get better fruit uh, uh, profiles. Uh, and then there's also the thing about family. So the family tree um, and, and how sturdy they are by how deep the root goes. 
But the, the, the real answer is uh, my, uh, our daughter. Um, she is just turned 15. And at the time, um, she was having her baby teeth pulled. So this was 15, I guess, or 16. Uh, the short of it is, is that she has really deep roots in her teeth. <laughs> and so we were struggling with coming up with a name. And then we got the deep roots comment from the dentist. And then we just decided to go with it. So it really can play <laughs> multiple ways. That's interesting. I would not associate teeth with wine and food, but I guess you eat it and you chew it and wine does kind of make your teeth we red. We were sitting there at dinner and she couldn't eat still. And of course, you know, Steve and I, we, we always open a bottle of wine at dinner and we're sitting there talking about all of the, the different things with the business and we got to come up with a name and Ella's just sitting there going, Mom, I can't eat my stupid deep roots. And I look at Steve and I'm like, oh, that's, you can do so much with that. <laughs> I like the name. I like how it crosses over into the roots of the family and roots of winery, but the teeth, I, stranger things have happened. <laughs> name, so it's, uh, it's interesting. So let's talk about the process now. So you've decided you want to work together. You've decided you're going to open this. You've got to come up with menus. You've got to build the, you know, how do, how do you even make wine? What, where did you start? And did you learn it on the fly? Or is it being a palate is different than actually being the mad scientist behind it? So on, on, the, on the wine piece, it was really around, we started in, you know, 15, kind of really doing large batches of wine. Um, we had we been start toying with it. Years before that, right? So it was really the cycles of, of practicing in small batches and carboys, six gallon uh, batches until you, you, you think you get the right sort of combination of things. Um, you know, the whole process of once we decided to go ahead and do this thing, it was really around finding the spot. So we started looking around for locations. We finally found the location that we liked on Wazi in Lodo. Um, and that's where we signed our lease in uh, February of 17. I would say too with the um with the process of even starting with the wine we got really lucky um just through some research and some calls connected with a um, grape distributor in um, Lake County, California, um, Shannon, and she's phenomenal and has been amazing for us to work with. So, you know, we flew out there, we went and we met with all of the viticulturists at the different vineyards. We toured the ones that had actual, you know, wineries as well. And so we could try, you know, the product that they were able to make. So we had, you know, a, a, a section of really good luck to get really quality grapes and really great people to work with with regards to you know making sure we had a good product that we felt we could sell and, and that's a that's a function of also you know most entrepreneurs uh, there's there's luck involved yeah of course well it's a little bit of preparedness and, and willingness to fail but yeah i agree with you it's luck and timing for sure and so now let's talk about menus and the, sh the chef and how did you figure out, did you pair food with wine, and, and how did you do all of that? So overall, our first concept was not to just do things that we liked, but things that went well with wine. So it was months and months and months of experimenting with different food, having dinner parties at Tier and Steve's house, and inviting all the neighbors and our friends over, and being like, here's our wine, here's the food, what y'all think, what's your feedback? And... um so we still kind of do that now. We still have many items that we've just done as a special and they've become full on menu items. And I have people that get mad if I say I'm going to take them off the menu. 
And so it's it was a lot of trial and error and experimenting and taste testing and even getting the teenagers' feedback on some of the food when we would try. Well, and then it was costing. So it yeah. was going through the process of, okay, we know we have a set budget. Um, here are the menu items we want to work with. Here's our weekly you know, spend for the kitchen. What can we do in that with the limited kitchen we have? Um, because our original concept <laughs> and all the food items we wanted to do didn't end up playing into what we had to do based on the city of Denver and all of the um, the build out of our space. So we had to change a lot um, with the menu with regards to that. And the funny thing that we always get from a lot of people, especially when we put on events or we're slam packed on a Friday or Saturday night is we leave the kitchen doors open so people can walk by and look in and they're like, you do all that in here. I don't have a grill top. I don't have a stove top. I don't have a vending system or any of that. So our entire menu is made to order right then and there, fresh ingredients, and just pushing it all out on a busy Friday, Saturday night is sometimes like, I'm impressed with us with what we do. Yeah. <laughs> so you have the, the, you have the food and you have the restaurant piece, you, ha- you have the vineyard. So uh, obviously as popularity goes and you have success, people start asking for the wine. Can people buy the bottles of wine with them after they're done with dinner? How, I mean, is the volume at a point where you start selling outside the restaurant? How do, how do you go and make those steps? So we um, started primarily just with uh, retail and uh, glass sales there at the winery. Um, so yes, you can buy all the bottles to take home. You can consume it there. It is a cork and carry state. So we can seal it for you, send it home, or you can just buy it. We have people who come in and just buy a bottle of wine and go. Um, we've started expanding out a little bit. So we're at Total Wines over on um, Colorado. Colorado Boulevard. So over by DU's campus. Um, but we're really kind of... <laughs> Because we do so much right there already, and we like to draw people in because of the experience you have when you're in there, um, that and the food is pretty good too, um, we try to limit the amount that we sell outside of the actual location. So you want to basically, your strategy is to try to, if they want the wine, drive them to the restaurant, the bistro, and have them taste it there and eat there as well. So I I like the strategies. How many people do you guys sit and... I mean, when are your hours of operation? So we're open from 3 until 9, 10 o'clock. Tuesday through Thursday. Tuesday through Thursday. Well, technically Friday Friday too. Um, And Saturday we're open 1 to 10. But 10 always being kind of the soft close time. (laughs) There are some Saturday nights we're lucky to see midnight. Yeah, so Sunday and Mondays are closed. That's what I'm I'm grasping out of it. And... um, so let's tell the audience again the name of your place. I'll let you guys tell it. You know your hours of operation, where they can find you, the the address and the web address, as well as your social media handles and information, so they can find you there as well. So let's do a little bit of an information download. Um, we are Deep Roots Winery and Bistro. We are open Tuesday through Friday from three to basically ten o'clock. On uh, Saturday, we are open from 1 until 10. Our social media uh, is Deep Roots Winery Denver on Instagram and Facebook. You can find us on both. And then our website is deeprootswines.com. And our physical location is 1516 Wazie Street um, in Denver. So right there in the heart of Lodo, about two blocks from Union Station. And so now that we've got the location down, let's back up because you mentioned 
hardship of a kitchen, small square footage. So let's go back to, to where we are. Let's go back to, okay, you guys have decided to do this. Now you want to go find a location. So how did you end up in Lodo or lower downtown, I believe is what it stands for in Denver. And then, then tell us a little bit about finding your location and the hardships you had with that. And then I'll ask the next question onto that. Um, it's, I would say we ended up in Lodo because of Steve. Um, really, that was kind of it. He was working down um, just off the 16th Street Mall. And was just, it was a great area. And he was like, well, if we're going to do this, I could bring a ton of people from my work over because you'd only be, you know, let's, let's look in this area because it could be a place that we can all go after work. Um, and so that's where we started the hunt. Yeah, and, and it's not, not as, as simple as just because it was near where I was working, but, you know, you do the research on um, things that are like us to understand, you know, who is in the space that's near us so we can, from a competitive perspective, where's the right spot to be. So we, we ended on finding, a, it was a 1905 building, um, part of sort of the sugar uh, building and sort of the whole area where it was... Um, I guess tunnels all through underneath, uh, but it's it was a it's a very I'll say New York style building, so very long brick building. Yeah, and it was really cool. I think um, for us, one of the things we were looking for was obviously a cellar or storage area. And so when we found this space, it was uh, they're like people always want to go to our cellars, and we're like we can't let you go down there because they're under six feet high. And it's not safe. He has to duck to walk down in our cellars. But for us, that was important because there's just cases and cases of yeah. wine that we have to keep cool. I mean, we have 700 cases of wine plus, you know, probably 15 barrels down in our cellar. So it's, it was a space we were like, okay, we want a cool space. We want something that's going to look nice. But also, where are we going to store all this? So do you... Um, so do you... Um, I tell them to make sure they put their mouth up to the microphone and I went and just did and I'm not leading by example in the studio but so when you take the wine when you make it you make it how many square footage do you have actually let me ask that first it's two two thousand and then probably eighteen hundred in Underneath. the cellar so the, the great part about the cellar is again it's it's prohibition tunnel so um, I'm bent over I'm, I'm just over six foot and it's probably you gotta be five eight or five seven to walk straight yeah down there um so it's great for that from this perspective of we can actually store all of our our product down there and we're not paying so we lease our space we don't have to pay a lease on that right but the in the 2300 that is upstairs when you include the the kitchen and bathrooms and stuff we do all of our wine production actually upstairs so we do it off hours we will move all of our tables we empty the kitchen which carol loves us for because we move everything we can out of the kitchen and that's where we do our crush our destemming, our press sometimes it looks like a murder scene uh, if we're working on reds um, but we do it all right there so anytime september through november when you walk into our winery it smells like crushed grapes and yeast so sorry so so we're you know we're we're working with the vineyards to figure out when they pick right so they pick they pick pack and ship essentially the same day so they'll load it on a refrigerated truck and four by four by five totes with ice cores and then they'll drive it out from depending on the varietal uh mostly west coast although we did do uh, palisade uh two varietals this last um uh, harvest so we get them in um, anywhere between two and four tons at a time. Um, so they're coming in through a back alley. So we have these big trucks, and sometimes we have to 
a big truck can't get down the alley because it's a tiny, you know, downtown alley. So they're sh- they're moving it into a smaller truck, and then they're figuring out how to be able to Back it get it on alley. a lift gate so they can drop it down, so we can throw it on our pallet jack and move the totes in, and then <laughs> essentially we hand uh, pail uh, the 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 clusters of grapes. <laughs> So we're moving a couple tons of grapes, a pail at a time, from the essentially right inside off the back alley uh, into her kitchen, where we're starting the process of of distem and crush. Yeah, and at that time we're moving everything around to make room for the destemmer and the crusher. And my favorite is like this past harvest season. Uh, Steve and I had a delivery, and he's like, "Don't worry, we're not going to destroy your kitchen today. It's not this." And then. Lo and behold, we got grapes that we weren't expecting for a couple more days that showed up. And then as we're working on that, we get a phone call that there's going to be a delivery tomorrow. So that's the best part is sometimes we don't even know when they're going to show up. They just call us and they're like, hey, we're going to show up with this. And so Steve goes, so we're going to be back here at 8 a.m. tomorrow. <laughs> and it, it, it really is. There's times where it's all you can do is laugh and just enjoy what you're doing because you can't get frustrated with it at all. And when Tira said my kitchen has looked like a murder scene sometimes, I'm, they I don't know how they did it, but I went up the wall and across the ceiling. Yeah, there's, there's, there's like almost like blood splatter, it looks like. So, I mean, do you, oh, are you, does the restaurant open then during that time, or is there like a period of no open, no. like no, only grape uh, crushing? We stay closed. Um, so we try to target that we're there at 8 a.m. We try to have everything set up so that somewhere between 8 and generally 9 that morning, the grapes are showing up. We don't open until 3. So our target is to be done and cleaned at 3 o'clock. Now, I will tell you, we have never actually hit that mark and generally have to post on social media that the bar is open, the kitchen is still closed, we'll open the bar because our staff will be there and can, um, you know, pour drinks. But people laugh. They think it's hilarious when they come in and they're drinking wine and they see us in like yoga clothes or like t-shirts and shorts and we're covered in grapes and we're like hauling, you know, buckets of, you know, now pressed juice to our big tanks or our barrels and pouring it in. And they're just like, oh, this is, this is awesome. Right. And we're, and we're again, from the, the, the crush in the kitchen, you know, we're essentially paling seven gallon pails and filling up a 150, 180 gallon tank, you know, um, pail by pail. So very, very labor intensive. But while we're doing that, we're, we're, we're dripping grape juice on our floors. So then the customers are walking around and they're, they're walking in really sticky floors because of all the, the juice from the crush. It, it's a good bonding experience. Yeah, it is. It is. It's funny to me because we have people that are like, there's no way. Because we have currently right now, we have 19 different varietals. And people are like, there's no way you guys do this here. There's absolutely no way. We're like, and we always take volunteers. We'll, we'll take volunteers. And sometimes I'm like, we really just need to record us one of these days doing it. Because as you said, they walk around on sticky floors and stuff. And we'll let them in. And we're like, don't go past here this spot <laughs> are you allowed to bring in volunteers then to help you do it or is it something you have to control through food code no um with the wine production um you can absolutely have volunteers um they just have to be 21 technically because it's alcohol at some point yeah and well just my brain going i wonder if there's since there's all the office buildings down there i bet you could have like a corporate retreat where a company just comes in and does a great <laughs> smashing bonding for corporate and yeah. you know, whatever that'd yeah. be kind of a cool experience it, 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 until they see an earwig and then they freak out <laughs> well and, and then the other thing is they always think it's like on i love lucy where you're yeah. actually stomping it with your feet yeah, yeah, yeah the yeah, fda frowns upon that yeah 
Yeah, so no no toe jam in the, no. In the wine. No. Okay, no. well, I feel a little bit better now because I was visualizing <laughs> I Love Lucy. We did a motivational Monday on her, but I every time we talk about wine on any of the episodes, everyone, the comments I get are still about the I Love Lucy smashing yeah. with her feet. So. It, it's not as glamorous as people think, but it is definitely a lot of fun. Um, it's very messy um, and just cold. The grapes are cold. Yeah. It, yeah. I, I think one of my favorite times was when, um, so we have a tendency when we were doing harvest, we just, we go across the street to Lucky Pie and we get pizza to feed the staff. And I'm walking over in a tank top and I'm just head to toe covered because I've been, I was the one like in the crates, like paling out the grapes. So I'm like just covered in grapes on my, and I had this woman look at me on the sidewalk, like trying to just give me like this weird look of like, why are you looking like this? And I'm just like, I don't care. I'm getting pizza. (laughs) I gotta imagine that. So I mean, it's all the grapes come in September, October. Is that what you guys said? So that's uh, well, some can come in as late as November if we're doing a late harvest. Well, we also then brought in uh, Chilean Malbec, which mm-hmm. is off season, so that's in May. Oh, that's awesome! Yeah. So let's go back. You said you had nineteen varietals. Mm-hmm. So let's. Do you remember all of them off the top of your head? Because I think uh, yes, that's a lot. Of, I mean, that's <laughs> yes. a big bite. I mean, most people don't take off take more than six or eight so you're doing 19 different wines it's their fault yeah so our our pinot noir is uh we we get out of the willamette valley of oregon so for those familiar with with pinot noir grapes i mean that's the land of pinot uh best quality grapes um next was probably the barbera which is coming out of california um our next red the rest of our reds come from lake county so the barbera the cab frog the cab sauve cabernet sauvignon um the zin the malbec and and then we we just did our meritage so steve just um released our first blend the rest of our wines are pure varietal so they are not blended um, but our first blend was just released, um, and it's a Meritage, and it's been yeah. amazing. And, that, and that's an interesting piece as well, right? Because most places, um, even with a Cab Franc, because of its tannin and acidic nature, um, people tend to soften it with like a Merlot or something. Uh, we don't. So everything that you're consuming, aside from where we're blending on purpose, it's 100% that uh, from a single vineyard, a single year. And then with our whites, we have the Pinot Gris, um, and that grape comes out of Columbia Valley, Washington. And then we have our Dry Riesling, our Sauvignon Blanc, our Chardonnay, our Muscat Canelli. Um, so those are our whites. Our whites. And then we have a rose. Um, and then we have uh, several sweet wines. So we have a black raspberry Merlot, um, and that is a traditional Merlot that we then sweeten with a black raspberry puree. Um, we have a white Zin blush, sweeter blush. Um, and then late we have harvest Riesling. Yep, the late harvest Riesling. And then we have our signature, one of our signature items is our red velvet port. And that literally is a cupcake in a glass. So that is infused with Giardelli and Godiva chocolate. Oh, so wow. that is a six week infusion process that Steve oversees. And then he fortifies it with um, brandy. Got, yeah, so, so, it's a, it's, so it's a port. So you're taking a, a traditional Cobb Franc base and that's sitting at roughly you know, 14, 15% alcohol and moving it up to. 17. 17 18 percent all right now the the major question 
what are each of yours favorite white and each of yours favorite red? <laughs> <laughs> That's easy. Um, so with the whites, I love our Pinot Gris. I like it. It's soft. It's one of those wines I can sit and drink all summer long. Um, but red, hands down, is, is that's my wine. Um, it's a 2015, and it is just, it's big, it's jammy, it's, you know, acidic, it's huge. That's hence your superpower name? That's, that's my superpower name. <laughs> For me, um, well, you're asking me to pick a child. Yeah, uh, definitely. So, not that we ever play favorites. Just remember, fair's not equal. Sure. So, I would say uh, dry Riesling is, is my white of choice. Sorry. Um, and then from the red, it, it varies. I mean, the Pinot is just fantastic. Uh, Cab Franc. Cab Franc. Malbec. Um, I'm really renaming all of them, but... <laughs> If I, had to pick, if I had to pick one, I, I'll do the Meritage. Yeah. All right. Um, so, no, I, I looked over, like, because I always get picked on because the dry Riesling yeah. is, like, one of my favorite whites. And for him to say that's his favorite white, that just made me all sorts of happy. Um, I like the dry Riesling because it's not like a traditional Riesling, where normal Riesling is on a sweetness scale of, like, nine. Our Riesling is more like a four. And so it's very refreshing. It has just the right amount of sweetness. And on the back end, I always get apple. So I thoroughly enjoy that. When it comes to the reds, um, I don't... Cab Franc. <laughs> that's my current. Uh, the Cab Franc. As our Cab Franc has gotten older, it's just... It's opening up beautifully, and I absolutely love it. But then, like, right down from that is the Malbec, and then for a long time I was the Zin. Yeah. So it's like, I like to vary between those See, I'm three if I'm drinking. It doesn't vary. Like, mine is, mine is set. <laughs> I know that would be Deborah inside as well. She, It's always the same for her. But for me, I've, I've got to try everything. Well, I, Zin, I don't care. I, well, and I'll still drink it all, even yeah. though I just right. try it, but... Our Zin is an old vine Zin, so it's actually, it's from a 48-year-old vine, um, so it's got just really robust flavor, and so Peppery, for me, smoky. I hate the new world Zins that are coming out that are much fruitier and sweeter. I'm like, I need something with some dirt to it. <laughs> well, that might have to be a quote for the podcast. Hashtag, I need some dirt to it. But, um, so tell me, do you, I, I see, I have no idea. I'm not, um... You know, I have a brother-in-law that's really into wines, but it's... Now, do you set aside some of each batch so they start aging? And I, that's really where value starts coming in the wines long-term. And then we, you mentioned as they, they age, they get better. So what do they age in before you bottle them? Or, or do they just go straight into the bottle? I'm not sure how that works. Yeah, so it's a it's a function of white versus red, right? So so whites you're not going to do a lot of wood on, so a wood barrel. Um, those are going to be in more neutral storage, so we generally keep them in steel tanks um, at times glass, uh, and then it goes in the bottle, and then it has to go through you know some level of settling in the bottle, and those are the, those are the whites. The reds are different, obviously, because um, the more complex reds, the the tannins, the acidities. I mean, they need wood. They need wood because of the tannin chains. And this is where you kind of geek out in sort of the science of, you know, why you pick what kind of wood, what, what's, what's the, 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 the tannin makeup from in, in, in the wine and how it's combined with the wood. And so doing those pairings 
is sort of what really creates the complexity of the red. See, I'm a total nerd. I, the flavor is great and drinking the wine is awesome, but when you said different woods do different things, like I'm foaming at the mouth over here, like tell me more about yeah. this because yeah. like I'm just so interested in the, like what happens? Like, so different woods give different flavor, obviously. Well, there's, there's, there's three main, right? So there's the American, which, you know, is more, more of those traditional sort of brandy barrels, right? Yeah. Um, but they're all oak. Uh, then you've got Hungarian and French, which are pretty similar in terms of the characteristics they give. Now, it's not just the wood. It's also the grain size. So what was the growing season when the tree was harvested? Because the different grain size gives off some, some more aroma, some more tannin chains. And so it's understanding, you know, which, which wood you want to go with. Uh, how long you want to go with, what percentage of the wine you want to put in the wood, uh, because too much wood is a bad thing as well, because it can get too oaky. So it's so it's really it's really a balancing of all of that. They now even make barrels that are hybrid barrels, like one stave will be an, uh, an American oak, the other could be French or Hungarian. So you can really mix and match the barrel to do really just about any combination you want to impart the flavors necessary to make the wine. So from year to year, if you change the barrel, you have to change the name? Mm. You're not changing the name. Uh, so it'll still be, so let's let's say uh, a, a Cab Franc, for instance. It's a Cab Franc. It's, it's a Cab Franc. It's always a Cab Franc. The Cab Franc's the varietal of the grape. Um, will it taste the same every season? No. So it's not going to taste the same because of a couple of things. The growing season might have more rain, less rain, more sun, less sun. Um, could be harvested at a slightly different point. And then uh, the, the wood and, and the yeast. I mean, so you'll try to follow the same yeast patterns when you're doing the fermentation. But the wood then is where you can, again, do different things to create different uh, uh, I guess outputs. Well, and I think a, a great example of that is our 2016 Barbera versus our 2017 Barbera. Um, so they, you're going to be able to tell, you know, 16 to 17, and that's clearly indicated on the bottle. But like our 2017 Barbera, just the way the wood was, it has a little bit more vanilla tones to it than the 2016. So it's going to be, I think, a little bit smoother um, on the palate as it ages. And so I'm going to come back to this, but so now they're changing the flavor profile on you, the grapes, so God a little bit, and then they're changing maybe the way they put in the barrel. So do you have to rematch the food to it every time when you're in the restaurant to get it to match the flavor profiles of the wine, even though it's the same wine? Um, sometimes, not always. We've had some adventures lately because like prime example, our Sauvignon Blanc, um, we normally pair with our Sriracha Ahi Tuna. However, that's off the menu for winter. So it's like getting a little bit creative of going, okay, now what am I going to pair with this? Because we have this option that we call perfect pairings. And that's where we take small portions of our menu items and we pair that with the wines. And so people can get a flight and then that perfect pairing with it. And people normally absolutely love it. They, they, because the whole science behind the wine and the food together. We have, if I make a specific cheesecake with a red velvet port, all of a sudden you get the taste of a Tootsie Roll in your mouth. Yeah. And so it's adapting and changing kind of how that flavor profile is. Like my our Malbec, we can we normally serve it with our Soprasada and our smoked cheddar, which the smoked cheddar and the spiciness of Soprasada bring that out in the Malbec. But then when we released it, we did a s'mores cheesecake oh, that tasted, tasted absolutely like so good. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so there, it's always changing and evolving and adapting. And we change out our menu every 
quarter is what yeah. we've been doing. We have some items that are staples that they're not going to go away, but other ones that we change it out. So with that, like what goes with what wines, when we run our specials, we suggest like, Hey, get this wine with this food. And normally it, people will tend to like it. It's a good combination. It's always a, I go to Steven Tier and I'm like, Hey, this is what I want to make. What wine goes what with it. What wine goes with it. <laughs> and so all of a sudden we have a staff meal with wine and food for everyone. So do you ever get tired of drinking wine? I don't think it's possible. <laughs> I don't think it's possible. No, no. is the answer. <laughs> I mean, it's an amazing, I mean, it's really like a dream, right? So you get to be together, you get to cook together, you get to make wine together. I mean, a lot of people can only dream about making these things happen, so... It's really awesome. I really want to go back into the, the wine flavors also. I wanted to come back around, but I wanted to make sure I covered the food part also because, you know, in food, as, a, as an entrepreneur myself and, and being in food for a long time, the growing seasons does change the flavor of not only grapes, but food in general, even the cows, even the sheep's milk, um, even the meats, even stuff like that, whatever's going into the food generally does change it or how their package can change the flavor and things like that so it's something i just want to let the audience know that it's a a good thing when we talk about it because it's it can be applied to so much in food and beverage but so okay you have different wood now are there woods that don't work there are woods. That, there are woods that certainly don't match the grape and the varietal and the and the and the yeast that you're doing so you you definitely are looking at what does and doesn't work and then creating the right combinations. Yeah, I'd, I'd be one of those. I'm an experimenter. I'd probably try every type of wood barrel that anyone would make me. Yeah, I mean, basic, they're all oak, right? And But there's lots of different ways to impart oak. And, and when you're imparting oak, you're imparting tannins, right, basically, and plus aromas that go with it. But... You could use a barrel. You could use a. You could use oak powder, yeah. um, which is. I mean, it, it, it's it's something that you can't do in Europe because they're traditionalists. You can only use a barrel, but you could use smaller barrels, which changes your volume of wood to wine. You could use wood staves, which are basically long, straight pieces or spiral pieces of wood. You can use wood chips. There's lots of different things you can do, and it really is you know doing the right combinations. Like I said. When you're getting a brand new barrel, it's too too much. If you put all of your, um, I guess at that point it's really wine, but it's just a very, very young wine, into wood, it's going to be too oaky. Unless it's a really, really short period, you hold it in there. So what you're ending up doing is really just deciding how much wine to go into the new barrel. How much goes into neutral barrels. If you want to add some other characteristics of a different type of oak, you can use the stave or the chips and those kind of things. Yeah. So we do play around with lots of different combinations. There's, that, there's so many, like it's the, the formula, the algorithm going on in my head to, for wine yeah. making is like enormous right now. And I'm like, oh my gosh, there's so many ver- variations that and variables that can factor into what makes a wine. I think it's much more complicated than, than we think it is, at it, least as the normal person that just pops the bottle. Yeah, the first I, part, we got to figure out how to get it open and what kind of sure. glass to put it in. <laughs> sure. I mean, I think the big thing is that, you know, there's a, there's a ton of science. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and, th- and that's kind of where my science background sort of pops in. So there's a ton of chemistry and microbiology and understanding mm-hmm. how all of these things play together. So, and, and then there's the art side, which is really all of those different combinations and, and having the right palate to be able to when you're tasting a very, very young, bright wine, it will taste n- next to nothing like it will end up. 
So I think the first time we were going down this path, we're tasting a really, really young wine, and it had like sort of bananas in it. And it's it, it, it we weren't sure. I mean, is it is it bad? Is it was was it is it tainted in some way? Or is there so, so that you know we end up kind of reaching out to different people we know, and they're like, no, 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 bananas is okay. That's kind of where it should be right now. But in six months, in this kind of wood, it's going to be something different. Oh, that's interesting. I I, I guess it makes sense because they say it gets better with age. Mm-hmm. And so it never really lasted that long in our house, but you know, I, we were never, we collected wine, but then we're, anytime there was a party, we'd open any bottles sure. we could. So, and we, we have like one or two that we've kept from South Africa just cause we went there a few years ago. Good ones. Um, that'll probably, uh, pop someday. I'm not sure when, but, um, I collect things. So those two, like, I can't bear to open them now that it's been over two years in our existence, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, I think it depends on who you are, um, whether you collect them or you like drinking them. And, you know, I don't know enough about them to really know, but I, we definitely enjoy wine in our household and family and friends. And like I said, I have a brother-in-law who wine cabinets or a whole closet, I guess I should say, whole room that he has and it's temperature controlled and all of that. And, and so I definitely love it. It's just, I, I think it's one of those things where you really get into it. Either you do it for a living, like like we're talking about, or you really spend a lot of time learning about it and getting the palate down. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's people in restaurants that understand all of it. So I think it's a very whole interesting thing for anyone who's, who's really into it. Well, and it's also, I would say, especially where we're at, it's also understanding the market um, and what wines sell and what wines don't. And so it's really understanding what's hot right now with people, um, you know, Cab Franc being a big one. Um, the Malbecs are huge right now. Everybody's drinking Malbec. If you don't carry a Malbec, you're not bringing people in. And so those are things that when we're looking at next year's harvest, you know, the 2018 harvest, it's like, okay, what have people been asking for? What should we be making? And from there, you know, it's like, we're missing a Merlot. We need to make a Merlot. And I'm like, okay, honey, we need to make a Merlot. I found our, our vineyard. And then his next question is, okay, what kind of Merlot do you want? So now we have to go buy four or five bottles of Merlot and try them and figure out what characteristics we're looking for. And then he sits down and he's looking at what yeast strains to purchase, you know, to ferment with that are going to bring out different characteristics, you know, what um, nutrients he's going to use that are going to bring out, you know, more of those fruit tones and things like Mm -hmm. that. So he, as soon as I say, here's what I want and here's the characteristics of what I want, he's off and running. Because that sounds like tough R and D buying three <laughs> bottles of wine and having to taste them all. That's exactly what I was just going to say. They have such a hard life going in, like taste testing to figure out what wines they want. <laughs> I'm like, okay, somebody's got to do it. All jobs should have that type of R and D. People would probably work a lot harder, or maybe it depends for a while anyway. <laughs> but so let's talk about. Okay, we're going to go back to a little bit about. 2017 what are some of the things that you've learned and and what are the hardships that you've seen and i'm not going to limit you guys because i can see that each of you have different (laughs) hardships based on where you are so you know let's explore those a little bit and things that you've learned from we're going to start with steve on that one oh sure i mean finding the location was relatively easy um finding the right architecture and uh a firm as well as you know, everything that we thought we wanted to do wasn't difficult. It was the budgeting piece, both both finance and time, right? So we, 
We've, we signed our lease. We had plans in place. Um, and then to some extent, it's a luck of the draw with, you know, which uh, permit reviewer you get from the city. Uh, and that's, you know, there's nothing you can do to really expedite those things once it's really going. But we signed our lease in February. Our intent was to open in July um, and then only spend, you know, X. And we didn't spend just X and we didn't open in just July. Well, so, let's be honest, with a 1905 building, you know, we didn't understand all that the city was going to decide to force us to do to bring it to code because you know we were using one section of the building you know the cellar didn't really matter oh no 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 no. the building department said this all needs to be fire code so you have to finish the basement even though nobody's ever going to be down there other than to store wine or it never was done before because um, the fire codes had changed and that were under a new uh, I guess more strict fire code, which isn't a bad thing. Um, and then, you know, on top of that is it really was a, uh, a boom in the building area. And so the, I think the, the city, and again, it depends on which, um, permitter you get, but you know, they can, they can be very strict in their interpretation of what the code means. And so we ended up doing a lot of work way more work than we anticipated. Well, and so what was it, 17 submittals to the building department for finalized plans? So we literally spent four months going round and round and round with the building department to get our plans approved before they could even start construction. Did it ever occur to you to look at a different building? We, I mean, we had already signed the lease at that point because the original um, design and the original, um, you know, walkthrough with the building department was one thing. And they were like, oh yeah, this shouldn't be that bad. You know, we should be able to get this done by July. But then once you got into the bones of it and they did the demo and they did the initial walkthrough with the, you know, the approvers and he was like, oh no, this and this and this and this, because they could see, you know, all of it. I mean, it's something that had to be done. I mean, we're pleased with the space, but it's one of those, you have to be prepared for, um, unknowns. Yeah. A lot of unknowns, a lot of budget plan, at least a 20 to 30% over your original budget, have that somewhere safely stocked away for things like this that would happen um, and plan for things to be at least three months behind. Yeah. I, I would say, I mean, to, to be, we're probably double yeah, we, we doubled our budget. And yeah. then, go ahead. Sorry. And one of the things like coming in in May and stuff and being there for the construction, one of the things that I learned just with that one was you also have to plan for who you have as your inspector. What level of strictness are there? Because we actually had one of the toughest electric inspectors in the city, which is a good thing for us because we know all of our stuff's right now. But then, even when it comes down to our sign that we had, it had to be approved and it was. Um, based off of the board's decision of whether they liked it or not. If they didn't like the design, we had to change it. And it comes down to like things like that and people's opinion and how they're handling it as well, too. That was kind of a point for us that we had to be able to deal with. Well, and I would say also, like with our kitchen, our original plans for our kitchen were, you know, to have a full kitchen in there. And um, we were going to make it a larger space, but then we got the, well, it's going to be $25,000 for this and, you know, another $15,000 to add the venting and then another $10,000 for the hood. And then it's like, oh my gosh, you know, this is all starting to add up and this was budgeted for. Um, And then you're telling me that it may or may not work because of the building. It's like, just screw it. Just make it smaller. We'll work with it. We'll take that space out and we'll use that for the winery and we'll figure it out. It's like, just scrap it. Let's, let's figure out what's easiest. And I think, I think if we had, so we ate up a lot of our budget with just getting to code, just getting the building to code. 
And so I think if we if we didn't go through that first piece, we would have been much more flexible with trying to, you know, dip into that extra funds just to to, to build out the kitchen in the right way. But when that came along, we were already double, if not more. So main lesson learned, historical buildings are cool and might get you extra space, but be prepared for very expensive renovations. <laughs> if at all possible, probably go with a new building. <laughs> and I want to, I mean, I want to keep going down the hardship path, but I want to make two points. One is, is that um, I used to have a design build subsidiary for restaurants and equipment and all of that. And the reason I asked, do you ever think about another space is because the reality is, is you can't actually start designing and really get into the depths of a building unless you sign the lease. So mm-hmm. it's impossible to go backwards. Most of the time mm-hmm. you can do all the due diligence you sure. want, but there's always something, you know, and I, it's like, I would always tell my cl- customers or people that we design for and build for. Um, and I don't do the business anymore just for this reason. Nothing. I, I can't stand not hitting deadlines, even though I knew I'd always tell them, what is your time frame? Double it. What is your budget? Triple it. Because nothing ever goes. There's too many working pieces. There's too mm-hmm. many people's opinions when starting a business, particularly a restaurant, which touches on so many codes mm-hmm. and, and, and everything else and has so many different opinions. And you have strict inspectors to, to lenient inspectors, and, mm-hmm. and they're all over the board. And it's a very tough thing. And, and my advice was always go to prepare for the future. Do it right as right as you can the first time, even if the guy's lenient. Get all the way to where you do it that way. You don't have headaches in the future. But I think the second part of what I'm, I want to say is the hardship there, one, it taught you a lesson. Two... Those type of disadvantages in getting through them, you know, they bond you, but they also make you work harder to get something off the ground because Mm -hmm. they just, a disadvantage becomes your advantage because it's the lesson learned and they sort of bond you and they make you work harder as entrepreneurs. At least a lot of entrepreneurs we talk to and they often come to us and and we work with uh, in our business you know, we say to them, hey, this is an advantage. It may not feel that way right now, but if you don't have the hiccups and, and you don't go through it and you aren't, you know, prepared to do it, you're going to fail down the road anyway because you're going to get, you're going to be hit some point in the road that you're not prepared for. So let's mm-hmm. get all the hardships away at the beginning. <laughs> let's figure them out. Let's be willing to, to have the failures. Let's be willing to do them because you're going to get them. The other part that I like is most people think, businesses fail in the first two years because they operate poorly. Well, there's partial truth to that, but the real part starts when they don't budget properly for the beginning. And so a lot of businesses will start and never actually open their doors. And a lot of people don't realize that that's how through accidents I ended up in the restaurant business so many times because we would start doing people say I have the money, they have the budget. And I'm like, okay, you know, whatever, prove it. And they're off spending the money on marketing, which was supposed to go to construction. Well, you're marketing a business that hasn't opened and now you're taking away the money you put aside. And so that's not a method of, you know, market it after the doors are open or, or when you know they're going to open at a certain point, you know, because I've seen it a hundred times where people start marketing. Oh, it's, I know it's going to open on this date. Well, it doesn't open on that date. So you just blew all your marketing money right. and three months down the road. And now you don't have enough money to finish the project. And so here we are where we're coming in, we're going to own your business, at least a part of it because you owe us money. And, mm-hmm. and so I just, I think you guys did a great job there. So I just wanted to point that out and point it out to the audience. 
Okay, back to the hardship. So you've all sort of weighed in mm-hmm. on the construction period piece. So what else have has gone on? Uh, I think we've been really lucky with um, our front of the house staff. We've been super, super lucky. We got Cameron um, be- right before we opened. Yeah, day one. Well, and it was... <laughs> It's a funny, and he's going to hate me for telling this. He showed up 24 hours late for his interview. Um, <laughs> I, it was scheduled for Wednesday. He had it down for Thursday, but he walked in, and I happened to be in the middle of one of those interviews that you're like, oh, my God, how do I end this politely? But this is not a good interview. we got to stop. Um, and Cameron walked in, and I was like, oh, thank God. I'm so sorry, but, you know, my next interview is here. It was a pleasure to meet you. And he sat down, and I was like, started talking to him, and he was amazing. He's um, Colorado native, mm-hmm. um, grows grapes, loves to make wine. So he's been kind of a, a jack of all trades with us. And even with our other staff has been great. Where we have struggled is getting this girl some help. Denver is in a chef crisis right now. And we are struggling. I mean, I play sous chef most weekends uh, because we haven't been able to get someone who will stay um, because there's always another job to go to that will pay more or have a little bit more hours because Denver needs chefs. Yeah, and the other thing that is actually interesting right now, and we were talking about this, is I just got done with a, a hospitality class that I chose to do through Eat Denver, is that um, actually with my generation, the millennial generation specifically, Um, people are kind of turned away from the chef job because they don't want the scary chef yelling at you and barking at you. And it's like, it's a very demanding job and it's more of an artsy job too as well. And so it's one of those things like where they're kind of seeing a shift away from culinary because people are, they don't, that, that whole purpose Mm -hmm. and things like that. And so not only there's that, but there's having like accountable people, and that's that's been our trouble for a lot of it and it's been very very hard but there's some days where i'm like cool i'm rocking it all by myself i'm great and then there's days where i'm calling tier going like how long is it till you get to work uh when will you be here uh sos please hurry up (laughs) well and i really want to talk about that because i don't the the whole and we've really accelerated it through through reality tv is the angry chef yelling Mm -hmm. at you in the kitchen (laughs) And we've talked about it on another episode, but it really doesn't have to be that way in my opinion, but, and I don't know why we're doing it. And I'll I'll be honest with you, the chefs that I've seen be successful, even the ones that are on reality TV that play these roles of very angry chefs, actually they're not in reality when they're with their staffs and in the kitchen, but they're doing it to sell sell television. (laughs) And while there are plenty of angry chefs out there, I've had my fair share it's, um, I, I just think that we have an opportunity as we're talking on the podcast to change this a little bit. Like chefs who generally do it, that I've worked with and Deborah and I work with or, or help excel their businesses that are, that have learned to stop being so angry and work with their teams and build them up. It's actually amazing how successful they are and how successful their businesses are by that little change. And the reason is this, there's not many of them out there. Because like you said, they, they've latched on or they, the real, the European way of chefing and the angry and the whatever. And yes, it, it, I think it's way worse on television most of the time than it is in reality. 
but it's still there. There's still that anger and aggressiveness and trying to get plates out the door and all of that that happens in the restaurant world. So I don't want to play it down like it doesn't exist. We've just made it into an expectation through reality TV, I guess is what I'm trying to say, versus it's become a standard versus hey, we don't have to do it this way. Because well, I think it makes it tough for people like you to get staff. It does. And it's one of those things for me that um, throughout my culinary career, I've been blessed with the fact that I've never actually had that like angry chef. I'm not even that angry chef. I will jokingly, when my people yeah, are back helping me, they're like, oh, well, I feel like I should be in trouble. I was like, raw or bad you, you feel better now? I'm super, super nice. And... Um, it's one of those things that, like, even my friends in the culinary field, they've told me some, like, horror stories, and I'm like, sweet God, I would quit. Like, I would walk out if someone talked to me like that. Well, and I would say, also, you've seen a shift away from the culinary um, program, too, because people are afraid of reviews, and they're afraid of Instagram. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think social media has ruined restaurants um, because... Everything has to be Instagram worthy now. If your food doesn't come out in a way that people feel like they can take a picture and post it, then you're not a good quality place and they're gonna write about it. And so there is, it's not as enjoyable to be a chef anymore because you're constantly mm -hmm. worrying about, does this look good enough? I mean, is this, this picture worthy? I mean, and we will literally look at every dish when it's going out and say, okay, you know, is this plated properly? And it puts a lot of stress on people instead of being able to cook, to enjoy, to make a good food. Not only does it have to taste good, but it has to look good. Mm -hmm. And she hit a huge point on the nail right there. And that's something else that we've, talked about in things like that is because it doesn't matter if you have great wine if you have great food if like your server is just having slightly an off day all of a sudden someone's right in a review of like your server was that they'll say that the wine was great and the wine the food was great but the server was less interested or like if you don't have a place to hang your purse or things like that and like social media and everyone thinking that they're an own reviewer kind of takes like some of the joy and the happiness out of it because it's no longer about getting your star it's about getting the five-star yelp review or the five-star google review or the open table and and it's not just about like your experience it's oh you don't have my one bottle of wine i have out of your 19 varietals i wanted this one and you don't have it and so it it's very hard and difficult and something that we've had to as a family and as a individuals, we've had to be like, what do we care about and what do we just let well, go? Well, and I think we care about it all. It's what can we fix is yeah. the bigger thing. When you look at the reviews, it's, you know, if there's something specific we can address, you know, if it mm -hmm. was that the server ignored them for 20 minutes, it's like, okay, I'm having a conversation with that server and we reach out to that reviewer and, you know, we let them know. Um, but it's, it, can I fix it? Or is it, you know, just unfortunately someone had a not, in their mind a not good experience. And so it's one of those things you have to have a thick skin. If I can give mm -hmm. advice to anyone going into the restaurant industry, the number one piece of advice is have thick skin, skin because you are not going to please everyone in less than one of 1% 1 of the population reviews. So under, if I put a hundred people through in an hour, one person's going to write a review out of that. And that chance that it's going to be a bad review is 50, 50. And so you'll have 500, 600 people in a day who love your place, but those five that are actually going to review, it's a crapshoot of whether it's good or bad. And so you just, you have to have a thick skin. You have to fix what you can, but you then the rest of it, you just have to kind of roll with it and understand 
it's just part of our society now. Mm-hmm. But it but it is data, and that's yeah. and that's the key piece. It is data, yeah. and you take that data and you do something with it. <laughs> and I think that's why you know we continue to be four and a half five stars on all the different yeah. places we are. And and you know you stock them. I got it. I stock the reviews daily, multiple times a day. Um, just making sure that again, if if it's data and things we can fix, we fix it. And even with that data, like one of my favorite was there was a dish, and one of our um, patrons suggested she's like, oh, what you know, why don't you add some fennel to this? And okay. We're like, okay, perfect. Thank you for the suggestion. And we went and did, and like we're like, oh wow, she was right. <laughs> Well, and I think that's part of it, and well, I'm, I have two things. One is it's a well, since we're talking about superheroes, it's a little bit of a Spider-Man thing with social media. Is with great power become comes great responsibility, and there are people out there that just are so negative and irresponsible. But if someone were like that to their job and reviewed them on social media, how would it feel? Because this is what I tell people, or when I. When people ask me, I'm like, the, your response is one, you know, you want to be friendly or whatever, but how do we get people to understand that if, when you're a restaurant or you're in the food and beverage world, you're publicly, you know, stoned, is for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. And, but no one else in their job is that way. We don't publicly stone a customer service person over the phone. I mean, you could write something about it on Facebook, but they, it's not your business that you built from day one. And, so what people don't realize is how would that feel if that were you, number one? So while I think it's helpful, like you said, because you can learn from it and, and I learned from it on this podcast, I don't always have, I have like 95% awesomeness and then 5% of the people from there are usually the same person that has something negative to say about something or whatever. So I get it. But one of the things I just, there's a quote and we do a motivational Monday, um, this upcoming Monday on it that I just recorded, but it's. Your love makes me strong. Your hate makes me unstoppable. Because while it's um, while it's there, it's okay. One, you're helping me, so thank you. You you know you're bringing attention to it, and it can drive people out the door. But the other thing is, it gives me time to adjust, which I think is big. And the the more you inspire me to do better, because I have to fix something. I have to figure out how to handle this. So. Thank you. I, I don't think people should be as rude as they are sometimes or, or whatever because I don't think they would like it in their job or if they built a business for it to happen to them. But I do think that it empowers us to do better if we look at it the right way. And, you know, there's a part of my life where I really took it to heart for a number of years. People's reviews and stuff like that and food and, and the businesses and those like five years of it and I'm just like you know what I can't do it anymore I'm like I've got to handle this differently and when I looked at it as okay I'm going to have gratitude for it and I'm going to be like thank you you know but it might hurt me but I'm going to thank you because what you're doing is one you're inspiring me to do better two I need to prove you wrong you know three you know maybe there is a problem going on in my facility and I need to look at it as not being defensive like you guys said I can say hey let me look internally first before I jump down someone's throat for a negative comment maybe I do have a problem maybe I did have a chef that was drinking on the job you know you know because sometimes be like oh blah 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 smells like alcohol I'm like well okay maybe I better really look into this instead of being like what are you talking about he's a great employee well you know sometimes people slip so 
It's funny, you just kind of hit on three different points, and I would say that Steve is the one who looks at it all and say, okay, you know, maybe this was, he's more the logical, I'm more of the, I need to do better, and she's the, wait, what? Yes. <laughs> you know, I gotta prove you wrong. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> well, and I think it, it's part of being any, like I said, once you go in the food and beverage world, it's not like a brand, like a t-shirt. If someone doesn't like your t-shirt, other people are still going to like it yeah. because it's out there. It's something you wear. But when it comes for some reason to food and beverages, people take, they won't even try the food or beverage before they take someone's opinion seriously. Mm-hmm. And like, here's the reality. It's just like clothing. We all have different tastes. Right. We all have different palettes. So don't always trust it. They can recommend it and, and it can become popular and blow it out of the water if you do really well. And believe me, there are places, and I lived in New York City for a number of years, that just suck at food. Like, there's no doubt about it, and the reviews are legitimate. But there's a lot of people out there that are just doing well. They, they care about their jobs. They're like you guys, and their entrepreneurs are in it every day, adjusting, pivoting, mm-hmm. looking at it. And so there's love going into the food. There's a lot of heart. And so it is good food, and it tastes good, and it does well with someone in waiters and employees you know that's less a reflection on the business and more reflection on them as employees as you know as i try to tell managers like let's look at this like it's like okay it's about the business but it's less reflection on the business we've got to figure out how to deal with the employee that this is causing it so and sometimes it's just a a personality thing Mm -hmm. like it's just the personality of the person at the table doesn't match the personality of the waiter Mm -hmm. and i would say that's uh, of the few those tend to be the the issues we have. Um, but it's interesting. I sent Carol an article a couple months ago and it's about kind of the, the death of the, the restaurant world. Um, and it was about a chef who gave back his five stars, um, his Michelin stars, I think are what they are and just quit. And he was like, you know, I'm sick of people coming in to my restaurants and treating my staff like they're not human. You know, when we go to a restaurant nowadays, you can't, you go, you drop the waters, you go to talk to them and they won't even look up at you because they're busy on their phones. And it's changed that dynamic. But then they wonder why it takes them five minutes to get your attention. And it's like, well, you've spent 10 minutes on your phone. I had another table to go talk to. Yeah. I'm a fan of that there should be no phones allowed in restaurants. <laughs> you don't allow smoking. Let, let, like socially, we're like just killing off our social ability. There are uh, restaurants in New York that are doing that. Yeah, I just think it's an interesting thing. I know people need it and there's some emergencies, but we have a family policy where we actually just stack the phones in the middle of the table and, mm. and you're not allowed to touch them while you're at dinner just because... And actually, the, the girls came up with it. Deborah and I didn't come up with it. It was their idea because all their friends were doing it all the time they went out to dinner and they're like why are we hanging out if all we're going to do is hang out on the phones Mm -hmm. but i didn't think about it that way because i think it's a good point if the waiter's trying to get your attention and you're on your phone i mean i remember my waiter days there weren't cell phones then but uh, at least the way they are now they were enormous but um like, I wouldn't want to interrupt someone if they're right. reading a paper or whatever. You want to be respectful. So you're teetering this line of being respectful and not wanting to interrupt someone. And then, mm-hmm. you know, they're like, well, where have you been? Well, you, I didn't want to interrupt you. I didn't know what you're doing or they're on the phone. Right. So. Well, and it's one of those things where the average time at a restaurant for a two-top has went from an hour to an hour and a half because of this. And the funny thing for most people is they then don't realize oh, well, we've been sitting for 15 minutes and haven't even ordered yet. 
I'm gonna put my order in and then five minutes later I'm gonna ask where my food is because I've been here for 20, 25 minutes. I should have food by now but I just put my order in. They lose all track of time. Um, and so that's become also for us as a business, you've had to adjust the average time that you have tables. We're turning over less tables because people stay longer because of this. And so it's changing the entire model of being in a restaurant. You, you can't put as many people through at times and you have to adjust how you're reading your tables. And so you need more servers or, you know, it's generally Steve and myself there. So Cam and Christina can run around and do what they need to do. And then we're hopping in when they're finally looking up and ready to order. And then like one of the other things that we always got to think about too is you have different generations coming in. Um, everyone, I've always found it funny because everyone's like, well, what's your target market? Or Target age. Target yeah. age. Um, and it's like, we don't have one. We, we're everyone. 21 and up. 21 and up. <laughs> yeah. And so it's like, you have, like, um, with things that I've been studying and doing lately, is you have the baby boomers, you have Gen X, you have the millennial generation, and now you have the centennial generation that, like, they, the centennials are turning, the oldest centennials are turning 23 this year. So there are newly 21, 22, 23 year olds. And so you have different generations that not only like, cause when um, someone from the baby boomer or someone that like our parents or something would come in, they want more attention. They're not gonna be there on their cell phones. Whereas someone who's younger might be sitting there playing on their cell phone. And then you have the ones that wanna talk. And then you're like, well, you have to find a way to politely excuse yourself to hop over to the next table. And so you have not only a uh, generation in a time frame where people are with cell phones and stuff like that, but a time frame of still respecting the different values of the different generations and knowing what they want. Cause they might wanna talk to you and they might just wanna give you their order and have you go away. And it's like sitting there going, okay, did I do something wrong? Is everything right? Are they okay? Do they look happy? And, <laughs> and so it's like, playing that whole field and figuring out how to please each person and it, at the end of the day you're not going to please everyone but it, being in our industry our main goal is to try and please everyone and make sure that everyone has a joyful and wonderful experience in our winery but I'm right there with you at the cell phones I started that in college because my friends would sit there at lunch with their cell phones I'm like put it away it's like the moment food hits the table your cell phone goes away yeah, well, the face-to-face -face relationships I think are still more important but it's um one of those things, so one of the things I want to touch on is one of the things that happens as technology improves is patience gets lower. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The amount of patience we have from generation to generation gets lower, and people want to say it's instant gratification or whatever, and they're used to getting it right away, but the real thing is it's a learning patience. We don't we don't have to wait for information and you know i can even order a pizza and track it now it's not like i'm waiting for when they happen to show up i you know it's like the weirdest thing i'm like i used to order a pizza over the phone i had no idea they'd say 10 to 15 minutes if they had but who really knew you know and i lived out in the middle of nowhere where we grew up on a farm my family and so you never really knew when the pizza was going to come but now you know and if it's not there on the time you want it's you know reviews going ballistic and all that and like now if the guy's like running five minutes late he's texting me or calling me on the phone like hey i'm running late like what like dude i don't care like i like oh this is like i don't understand but then i talked to him like hey man it's okay like you bring pizza here all the time i don't care if you're late he's like well you wouldn't believe how many people get so upset if i'm five to ten minutes late and he's like and it happens because i have so many orders of pizza so my business is doing well but he's like you get the younger people want their pizza when they want it at the time on the dot and it's interesting because i guarantee most people 
um, don't actually on time. And the interesting thing that happens is while they have less patience as they get the younger generations, they're less on time, which is a whole mind-boggling thing. I can tell you that more of my employees, the younger they get, the less they show up on time. So you want everyone else to be on time. You want everyone else to, to be there, but you're never on time. So guess what? You know, so... Karma. Yeah, it just is one of those things where I, I think they have so much information. So I think that they're the greatest ever generation is right around the corner because they're having to process more information than we are. They just haven't figured out how to actually make it productive yet. So I think that's kind of a cool thing. Um, I have theories, but it could be. And um, I think we have an advantage um, in that respect because we're a winery. Um, and so when people come in and it's a busy night and we have, there are times where we'll have like an eight or 10 top or a 15 top come in and our kitchen will be busting it out and they cut, you know, we'll be seeing people. We let them know ahead of time. We've got a very busy night in the kitchen right now. Things are running just a little bit behind. You know, here's a, a free taster on the house from us. We can ply them with alcohol, which well, tends to help. Or dessert. They, alcohol they, they helps like dessert. Yeah. yeah, dessert. Chocolate desserts. Yeah. And so, uh, anyway, we're off on the, the hardship. So <laughs> I can keep going, actually. But it's one of those things where I, it's not a complaint because I think that Whatever, whatever ends up happening, we find our way as each generation, um, and we find out how to give to the world. It just takes a while, so I don't want to go there. But I do, my, I do want to harp on the point of, you know, it makes it hard. And table turning is the way restaurants make business, yep. make money. The, the and time at the table and doing it. So to your point, what everyone is seeing right now that's in the restaurant world. And why actually food trucks have a little bit of an advantage mm-hmm. and there's such a boom in it is that people are there, they, they buy the food, even if they have to wait at the food truck, they're right. not holding up progress. Where in a restaurant, once you take the table, that table is consumed. I can't bring any more people in. There's fire codes and there's right. amount of tables. And so I'm at a limited amount where a food truck, I could line the whole sidewalk forever if I wanted to. So. I, I want to make that distinction because I think if people are listening to this episode and you're dilly-dallying at a table, well, that's as long great. As you're I don't want you money. to go anywhere. But what I am saying is just be mindful yeah. of, you know, and respectful of the people that are working hard for that table or the waiter that's trying to make a tip because they're making less money. And in a world that money matters and the economy is based on actually the turning of money from people to people... That's what really makes our economy successful. That is important. So, okay, now I've said my, my thing. So, more hardships. We've talked about a little bit about the kitchen. We've well, talked about the staff. We've talked um, about the, the front of the house. I would say one of the hardships we have is sometimes timing with some of our vendors, like Restaurant Week being Oof. a... A huge example. Um, Restaurant Week, I don't know if you've ever participated in Denver's Restaurant Week, but it is um, essentially eight days of chaos of us basically living there. We Um, should really just set up cots. But all of a sudden you're out of something and you're calling your supplier for it, but there's 15 other restaurants there in the city who also happen to be short on it and they're sold out and you're like, crap, this is what we've advertised. We have to get creative now because our supplier's out. And so it's, you know, those kind of things get really um, tricky at times. You know, our baked brie is one of our best selling um, items. And when our supplier is like, yeah, for some reason they 
are out and we're not getting it in for three weeks and we're like, no, that, that's not okay. Like I will go to your competitor because this, this cannot happen. It actually happened to a certain restaurant, like not with a bakery, but um, I had an order and I went to go pick it up and no one emailed me, no one did anything. But this is when I learned that they had switched policy and if one thing wasn't available, they weren't going to be sending the entire order. And I showed up, so I'm like scrambling around their warehouse trying to get what I need. She's calling me going, hey, how much longer till you're back? And I'm like, this is what's going on. I'm sorry. I was planning to be back 15 minutes ago. I think ago. we had to go to four different stores to get everything we needed because they didn't have it in stock. And it was just like, are you kidding me? It's restaurant week. How do you not have it in stock? But you know, you just, you figure out how to make it work. Yeah. But I mean, the great thing was, is that just, it meant we were doing really well that we had sold out. I mean, we had projected for our number of reservations and we just, we oversold. I mean, we ended up with more people walking in and going, Oh, restaurant week menu. Oh, this is good. Let's just stay here. And it's like, great. Awesome. But we did we did not expect the foot traffic we got which was great for us but it definitely made um it hard and so yeah that was definitely learning restaurant week Mm -hmm. and that whole budgeting planning thing is interesting and then i think one of the other hardships that all of us face um is work-life balance because being owners and siblings and family and everything like that sometimes there's moments where just like you need to get away from me. I don't want to talk to you. And then there's moments where I, you're like, I love you. Can we hang out? After? Can we hang out like on Sunday actually as a family? But we all have our own different things that we have to balance. Like I'm finishing up my master's program. So I'm balancing school and I don't have any kids, but I have a dog, which when I'm working 12 hours a day, then it's like figuring out when I'm going to get home, hiring a dog walker, making sure I'm okay with strangers walking into my house to let my dog out. And T and Steve have three kids that are school and sports and all their oh, yeah. stuff and I mean, all let them talk. I would say um, for us, like, and I know one of the things for us was the big change in our um, our family dynamic. I mean, we, we spend less time together um, now. Uh, Sundays and Mondays are no-go days for like friends and stuff because it's the only day where mom and dad are both home. So those are family days. Um, and then it's like, you know, um, Tuesdays and Thursdays, Steve is chauffeur for three and a half hours um, with the different kids and, uh, you know, sports and stuff. So, um, and then I, I try to be home when I can. We try to trade off because obviously he's got wine work and stuff to do. And then, you know, it's just one of those things where for us, it's when we get home at night, it's like, okay, we need a bottle of wine and we need all the kids to go away and it's 10 o'clock and I just need some time to sit with you because this is the only time we really get together. So that was a big shift for us. Mm. And then they were crazy enough and got a husky puppy. Yes. <laughs> That's brave. <laughs> Putting the dog in the mix. But yes. um, having a dog myself, I feel like it ties the family together and definitely the kids love it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I want to just... We've talked about the family dynamic a little bit in time and all that. So, we and we just talked about changes and stuff like that. So, what I want to make sure we sort of discuss is if you could go back and do it again, what would give me three things that each of you would change? <sighs> and you know, some of the things that you wish you you would have done different, or you wish you could do different now. It could be anything from des- the design of the restaurant to the way you handle 
restaurant week, which I should, while you guys are thinking, I'm going to point out to the audience that a lot of restaurants actually call it hell week. Yes. It's, a, <laughs> it's like the worst week of your life. It's probably one of the most profitable, at least from my experience, but it, uh, it will tear your life up and, and you will feel like you're in hell every moment of it. Well, and it's harder even um, in Denver in particular because of the fact that you have Valentine's and then it's like seven, eight days later you have restaurant week. So for us, I mean, we were sold out at Valentine's. We, our staff was trying to recover from that to roll into restaurant week. So it was like, oh my God. I was like, can we just from now on be closed the week between Valentine's and restaurant? Can we just go on a mini vacation so we can come back and be able to handle this? Um, but if, if there is something we could change, um, I think for me, if it was something we could change, um, I would have made your kitchen bigger. My, yeah, <laughs> my kitchen bigger. That That's one for me. But also I think, um, because I remember how frustrating it was for us when we started up and we actually ended up doing a lot of the interior design the three of us did by ourselves. Yeah, that if you come into the winery, that brick wall that is right behind the bar, we put in with our father. So Steve and our uh, middle daughter, Allie, and Carol and I and my dad put that in because we could not get a mason. They, we tried. Uh, yeah. I went to three different masons, couldn't find it, so we, we flew in, you know... Uh, dad and and off we went yep and there was like two nights where i stayed till like 10 o'clock and tears like calling me going go home and i'm like i'm almost done but um i think for me one of the things i would change is in the beginning um as i said we did a bunch of the stuff by ourselves and it was more efficient i mean our dad was a general contractor and stuff and we're all handy but it was more or less probably would be with the knowledge piece and how to handle the city and stuff because like we even had things that we wanted a patio and our designer or whatever his official title was was like, yeah, you guys can have a patio. But then the city comes back and goes, no, you can't. And it was the different regulations and stuff. So I, for me, it would have been we trusted people a little too much and we didn't have enough knowledge sometimes on our own. And that would be one of the main things because I think that would have saved a lot of frustration for us in the beginning. Yeah. Well, and we, we were smart um, in one respect. We got a hold of the health department pretty early on um, because I was unsure of what our kitchen was going to require based on our menu and stuff. And so I got a hold of the health department, and that actually made it super easy for us. We actually, I think, of all of our friends in the restaurant business in Denver, um, we have seemingly had the easiest time with the health department. Um, but because we started way before we even opened, right when we signed the lease, we got in contact with them. So we were approved the same day that we applied for our um, review. They came in and had us approved by the end of the day, which was awesome. I wish I would have went and did that with the building department because if we had figured out and got in contact with them early on and you know got connected with the right people, I think it would have made it a lot easier for us and so we wouldn't have... 17 revisions yeah I, I i think it kind of goes to what what caroline was saying which is really um trusting people too much i mean we, we as we got into the process we got more and more and more hands-on to say no no no, we're not gonna do it this way we're gonna do it that way but um going back to the very beginning i would have done that from day one had the conversation with the building department had all of those personally as opposed to expecting the vendor to do it well, and I'm amazed, and the Georgia does this quite a bit. They have like a two to three day class, depending on it, to how to be a food entrepreneur and open up a business and what all the steps are. 
and it's and it's done by the universities and it's an amazing thing because it it is and my own experience also is we do pay tax dollars to public universities there's no reason we shouldn't have these programs for businesses that create jobs and create additional tax dollars to for people like you guys when you go into somewhere and you want to start a restaurant like there's a, definitely enough information that you go through that would have been streamlined in two days and I'm not the person to do it. I'm not education-wise, but I hope through the podcast that people can learn from it. But it's a lot more than two days of listening so far. So I don't expect a person to go through all the episodes before they open a business. But what I am saying is that we um, we can help people um, by being better business owners and things like that, um, or be biz- better business owners by offering them courses. So I think mm-hmm. that's so important. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so we talked a little bit about that. I think that's a lot of people's hardship is the beginning parts. Like, why isn't someone help educate all of it? And then there are so many people because there's so many steps that take advantage or, or, or don't research information before they tell you and get you on the hook to spend money with them. Um, and so I think that's interesting. And then there's change orders and everything else in construction. The other point I want to say is why aren't there more masons like as an (laughs) american with italian heritage like all my relatives were masons and i'm obviously not one but i know the skill there are plenty of masons it's how much they're willing to do or well or how many we're willing to do our small of a project for what you know we had budgeted when they're being bidded out for much larger, more yeah, lucrative. Yeah. I mean, that was our problem was we'd get somebody, but then they would be offered another project and they're like, I'm sorry, I have to take this. This is more lucrative. And it's like, we get it, but come on. Um, but if I could go back to one other thing that I would do that we didn't do, I would have taken the kids on a three week, three week vacation to the beach before we did, before we opened. I would have went and hung out and did nothing for three weeks because once you open and really, you know, when you're in that last month right before you open, it's all, I mean, it's consuming. That's all you do. And so I think I would have went and kind of had that downtime in preparation for the commitment we were getting ready to embark on. Anything else? I, I would throw in one around marketing. Really having a solid marketing plan that, you know, someone isn't developing for us who doesn't really understand what we're trying to do. Again, more hands-on. We we build it. We execute it. Yeah, and I really want to touch on that because you brought it up, and I think it's a valid point, at least in my experience also, is that you can pay people money to do marketing, and there's plenty of people that do it very well. But in an age where the story has to be told... No one can do it better than the people that are starting the business. And, and you know, that's part of the reason we do this podcast because I feel like it's a tool for all everyone to tell their story. And that's the best marketing there is right now. There's no reason that we shouldn't do it. Social media is a beast in and of, it, of its own, and it's hard. But it's hard to trust it to someone else when that's the story that's being put out there. But I mean, it, it comes down to, I mean, how far, how thin can you stretch yourself? And that's where we're at right now. It's like we, no one else can do it for us. We need to do it ourselves, but we're already doing so much. It's like, ah, I just want to find somebody who can do this, that 
actually knows what they're doing and knows us well enough that they know our story and know what we're trying to communicate. But uh, you know, you can't. And then it's like, okay, so we have to do this. So we have to divide this up and we're, you have to post daily and you have to be relevant and you have to, you know, host events and you have to market yourself and pay for advertising. And then what are we advertising? What are we trying to promote? It's like, oh, then it even goes down deeper into how do we advertise because social media, Instagram and Facebook only get so many people. Like if they don't know how to use Instagram or Facebook or they're not social media savvy, then how do you get those people in, in things of that nature? And I'd say, honestly, for us, word of mouth has been the bigger one for us. Yep. It's people have been in and they told friends and they come in and then it's like, oh, I was here for a, a marketing event or I was here for something. And so now I brought my mom and everybody else in. And so for us, I, I think it's been we're kind of learning that the more events we do, the more kind of group events that we get, we get that kind of. Um, transition um, in word of mouth through because social media we can get 500 likes but is that going to bring in 500 people yeah and uh, I just want to touch on it and I'm I'm, going to say this and I wish I didn't have to say it in this the world we live in but influencers on social media are a big deal and there's Mm -hmm. lots in Denver and what I've seen success for some of the people we work with and, and mentor or help out is that They'll actually bring in a social influencer. They'll give dinner for four for free and a bottle of wine and have them push it out. I don't exactly agree with it because they don't, again, tell the story of the actual people mm-hmm. and they bring people in. And it's, it's literally a glimpse. And you want to talk about data, like they blast it out there. It's popular for about three days max. And then it's gone and it works. So, you know, I'm not sure that that's the best road, but I know it works. But the problem is, really, I will tell you, is the best users of social media are our children. And they're, and they're made, not our market. And they're, they're, you know, while they're under 21, they touch a basis of, well, I, I have most of them under 21. But it's, um, or one under 21. But they... They know how to use social media better than anyone. Like, mm-hmm. you know, my, you know, Zoe's into CrossFit and lifting weights and she figures out how to get hundreds of likes on videos and people follow her and, and all this by, by, by doing it and her friends repost and people repost. And so I don't know. I mean, it's, I have no idea how it works, but maybe there's a, an entrepreneur in the ranks and training already in the family because they do know and they already have the followers and the fans to push stuff out on their own social media. It's just uh, alcohol is a little bit interesting. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but well, I don't not about my 15-year-old pushing out no, but, pictures but, of her, but she does edit our photos. Yeah. Absolutely, and she understands, you know, we were on vacation uh, spring break last week, and we had to go out and get certain photos has, had to be done. They had to be done the right way so she could build a story about the vacation. And it's, you know, we, we actually made some extra trips just to go find some extra things in Arizona that are very, you know, Arizona-like, just so she can get those pictures in because she's building a story. She's trying to trying to tell a story that, you know, we could learn from. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing is they know how to use the apps. They know how to use the different programs. So, like, we went to New York to see Harry Potter play for uh, Maddie's 21st birthday present to her I gave her. So, we all went to New York. And Zoe, on the airplane home, which is probably about three hours, 
created a whole video of pictures and videos she had taken and streamed it together and added music. That would have taken me a lifetime. And I'm the one behind the board with the podcast that I'm like, okay, like that's out of my league. And even this, I'm learning as I go, but it's, I don't know, they have something and they understand the instant gratification and, and what people like and don't like anymore. Um, it's better than we do. And even with my generation, like, it's funny. I'll, like, pick things, like, to go out for the podcast and be like, no, do this. And I'm like, that's not going to – are you kidding me? How is that going to work? And uh, But I try to keep it open mind. That's what I'm saying internally. Yeah. Uh, externally, I'm being very supportive. And um, <laughs> But it works. The stuff works. The graphics work. The And the photos work. And the little sayings and the twisty little things that I'm like, that seems annoying to me. But it, the stuff works. And mm-hmm. so – I don't know. That's not. I don't have any permanent suggestion because I don't know your business other than the the thing. But I'm just. Yeah, we we brought in the foodies. We brought in the influencers. Um, you know, and again for us, I think with our location, they and they've worked. We've gotten some some feedback and following from them. But I think really for us, it's been the friendships we formed with our neighbors, the residents in the area, and then they tell friends or they bring people in when they're visiting, and we get you know just more and more people who are honestly just walking by and they go, oh, there's a winery here. I need to stop in. <laughs> so our location in and of itself has been a big driver of our traffic. And that was, you know, again, to Steve's point, you know, it wasn't that it was just close to him, but it was the, the location just off the 16th Street Mall. A lot of people don't park on the 16th Street Mall. They have to park at one of the lots off of it. So they're walking by us and they stop in. And our quirky chalkboard sign works a lot, too. That brings people in. Well, and just so you know, obviously, I direct message you guys. That's how I got you on the podcast. So I, when I look at social media and I go out and recruit people, I don't just pick anyone. I, I see what people that seem social media tells me about a lot of your structure and a business and people's comments. And, like, so I know that you guys are doing a good job. It may feel like you have to do more, but you're doing a fabulous job. I mean, you're attracting people there, you're getting traffic, people are looking at it. Whether they actually like a picture or not is something we we don't understand as our generation, but our kids, they don't, they're not out there. They want the likes, but they know that if they put it out there, so many more people see it than actually like it. I mean, even Deborah does it. I like every photo on my stream. I'm like, oh yeah, show the love. Heart, 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 heart. <laughs> but Deborah doesn't. She'll stroll through. She'll still see it. She just doesn't heart everyone mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think that's important also. But I do really like what you guys are doing for sure. And so I, I don't know your business, but from the sound of it, you guys are really a great team. And I really loved having you guys on here. So here's the most important question, I'm sure, is where's the future? And do you, or is this something you guys want to grow? Is this something that you guys are happy where you are? Like, how do you figure out next steps? Because you seem so busy. And I do know you're a very successful business being in the restaurant and food world as long as I have, you don't survive like you guys have or have the popularity unless you're doing something right. Yeah, so we're, we're, we've been open a year and a half now. Um, and as we're you know in the midpoint of our second year, we're now looking at our second location. So um, Deep Roots 2.0 is being um, kind of hunted for. So we're looking in the Golden area, the Arvada, Wheat Ridge area, something a little further outside of Denver um, where there's not a lot of wine. It tends to be much more beer centric. Because what we're seeing here in Colorado is um, 
there is a growth of wine as people are moving in from other states. Um, Colorado has been so beer centric and there are a lot of wineries, but they're predominantly Colorado wine. Um, and if you're from the Midwest, you have a different palate than that. Um, and if you're from California, you definitely have a different palate from that. And so being able to bring our grapes in from the West Coast and produce that kind of wine that's to the quality for people who've lived on the West Coast or Chicago or, you know, wherever um, is becoming a big thing. There's more and more urban wineries that are opening. And so we were ahead of a few of them uh, and have been lucky enough. So we're looking to then expand that um, to another location that's still very beer centric for those people who are the wine drinkers. Yeah, it's interesting actually. There's so many, I like literally where we are, and I probably say this on podcasts a lot, but there's literally 11 microbreweries within three miles of where we are right now. Yeah. It's unbelievable, but there isn't the wineries, there isn't the wine, but I do agree with you with Denver being such an attraction to people that mm -hmm. wine is becoming more popular. Mm -hmm. And I think that as Denver, I don't want to say the word sophisticated, but as matures as a city and, and gets older, it this becomes part of what cities do. You know, it's what happens on the East Coast and the West Coast and, and Chicago, for example, and parts of Texas, but we're seeing a maturity here that these type of things start making their way in. So I think you guys are on to something great for sure. And the, the food as well and matching it to the winery and I've definitely seen the desserts and I'm going to be trying all <laughs> the red wine truffles. Because that's even one of the things that I was thinking about is a lot of breweries have their food trucks, but around here, like, yeah, we were the one of the, like, we started and we saw a lot more wineries come in, but we're still also one of the few that actually offers food. Yeah. And a lot, some of the other ones will cater in from some of the little smaller businesses around them or not offer it at all. And that is one thing that people have tend to love is that we do food and wine. It's not just one or the other. And as for future, well, my, my middle niece is being groomed to oh, yes. take my, over my our, job one day. Our middle daughter is um, quite often on the weekends. She's down there in the kitchen playing sous chef, food runner. And she's like, Mom, I'm taking this over one day. So yeah. well, that's good. And uh, you're teaching your kids something they're not going to get in school. Yeah. Being an entrepreneur is not taught in school. It's uh, hard knocks. And I, I learned that as I got out of school because I grew up in an entrepreneurial family. So we sort of talked about your father being a general contractor. Mm -hmm. So were you guys, have all of you sort of had an entrepreneurial spirit from the beginning or is this... I would say, well, it was always in the plans for us. We always wanted to be able to do this. Um, so I think in the back of our mind, yeah, we've always been entrepreneurial. Steve and I have run um, a consulting firm in the past. We've done a few different businesses. Um, so, you know, just depending on what we were interested in at that time. So Steve and I have uh, a little bit more of a background understanding how to set up a business, how to do the LLC, the taxes, all of that fun stuff. So I was already well versed in that. Um, it was just one of those things I was like, okay, we want to try something new because with consulting, we were on the road, you know, we were switching off weeks with the kids. So he was flying out one week, I was flying out the other. We were, you know, 50 weeks a year, um, being independent consultants. So it was one of those things that it was, it was time with our third and final, um, to say we're, we're done with that for a bit. <laughs> yeah. And I think for partially part of it is also all three of our personalities like we were all corporate and stuff like that and even in the corporate realm I was like the head of 
my section i kind of did my own thing and then told my boss what i was doing and she quite frequently would always come to me for the solution of how to do things but i think personality wise all three of us in have the like we like to do what we like to do well, and we're all very effective people. Yeah. And Steve's just a grand poobah, so yeah. he, he, he's the final say. When we can't figure out something or we're just questioning it, it's like, okay, we're going to Steve. Or even as sisters, like, he's neutral, he's Switzerland, because when we can't agree, it's, he doesn't always agree with her just because she's his wife. No. He's not afraid to tell me no. Yeah, it is kind of funny, because I'll be like, Steve, you need to decide this for us. That's a good place to be. Don't decide at the beginning. Be there to support it in the end because you will succeed much more in that direction, I think, honestly. Um, But it's good. You guys have a balance. And I think it's important for entrepreneurs, especially in partnerships, and to have that balance and be together. And while you have a family dynamic, it doesn't always translate into business. And so I think it's, it's hugely important. Well, and I think the reason it works so much for us going into business together was Carol and I had an understanding, you know, we, we've always gotten along, but it was like, okay, if we can't agree on something, it goes to Steve. So we've always had that, you know, person who was quote unquote in charge, final decision. So it wasn't like we're sitting here arguing back and forth all day long, trying to figure it out. It's like, we're getting nowhere. Let's go to Steve. So that's helped us in our working relationship, having someone else be the final decision. So is one of you the creative one and one of you the logical one? We <laughs> both are. I think it's like 50-50 because we, ha- we both have our moments. And so like as kind of to piggyback off of what Tierra said, I think for us it works so well because even though we're sisters and stuff, we have this understanding. And even with like Steve, like all three of us as family, we have this understanding of when it's work and when it's actually personal mm-hmm. and we're like miraculously we're able to 90 percent, and i say 90 percent because sometimes we can't but 90 percent of the time we can separate the two and it's one of those things where there are points where we're all logical there's points where we're all creative i don't think it's one person is more than the other mm-hmm. i mean even like steve and us we had one problem and i sent him a picture and i was like hey would this work and it worked and i got super excited at work that i solved it i was like haha i get credit for this um but it's yeah i think it's the perfect balance because we all have our moments and we all make it succeed and we all work exceptionally well together so well thank you guys for being on the podcast for sure and i look forward to hearing what 2.0 actually is for deep roots and, <laughs> yeah. and where you guys decide and and you know we'll get you back on the podcast and yeah and hopefully by then somewhere. we've uh, signed a lease somewhere the, the question is i guess is how are you going to divide and conquer or if all three of you are in the same location Ooh. so we'll leave that as a yeah. to be continued uh, question but I really do appreciate you guys coming out here and driving down and being a part of it. I really do love your story and I love what you're doing in Denver. And I still like, there's not many concepts like it, which is why I reached out to you guys. And I think you're doing a wonderful job. So thank you guys. I really do appreciate it. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. And uh, anyone who's listening in and likes the podcast or likes the episode, please obviously go to deep roots and, and try it out and try the wine. Um, Try the food. Try the cheesecake. Apparently, I can't stop thinking about that. <laughs> it's good. Had to and, make one. And so, and share the podcast. Share what we're doing here. The you know they're here volunteering their time and just trying to share their story to help everyone out. So, 
you like what we're doing, uh, reach out to me on direct message me on social media at Justin the Food Entrepreneurs. If you want to be on the episode, you can reach out to me at justin.bizarro at gmail.com. That's B-I-Z-Z-A-R-R-O at gmail.com. And everyone have a nice day. Thank you very much.